Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Simon Mundy here. Welcome to my podcast, which uses sports and other areas to explore life's bigger questions. This week, I'm joined by former world champion and world number one squash player, Laura Massaro. Now, the Olympics are still in full flow and Laura never quite had the chance to compete for a medal as squash has always been overlooked by the IOC, despite it being among the top 50 sports in the world in terms of participation ahead of many sports that have been given the nod for the games. But Laura's learnt not to bemoan that fact. She's about accepting a situation or changing it if you are able. She also has some valuable reflections on being careful what you wish for, as too much attention and glory can feed the ego, which is an area we do zero in on. Laura's career was marked by her rivalry with Nicole David, one of the most dominant sports people of all time. And her new book is called All In, Becoming World Champion. Now, Laura was a real pleasure to chat to. She's wise, fun and intelligent. Plus, she and I once commentated together on squash at the 2014 Commonwealth Games. So it was great to reconnect. And just a reminder before we get into the episode, please do get in touch with me on social media. Any thoughts, questions, suggestions, whatever, at Simon Mundy. And this week's Monday on Monday newsletter features some nutrition nuggets, four key values to consider, and some wisdom on dealing with pressure from one of the very best in the business. So head to simonmundy.com to sign up for that. But first, here is... Laura Massaro. Laura Massaro, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. It's so nice to see you again. You and I have a bit of a, an interesting history. Uh, well, hang on, that sounds a bit racy. No, let, let me rephrase that. <laughs> you and I commentated on squash at the 2014 Commonwealth Games the men's doubles final, it was the last medal of the tournament and, and we were just talking about it off air. And I'd never commentated on squash before and nor had you. 
<laughs> yeah, I just played squash. I hadn't commentated on it before, so it was definitely a first. Um, but it was a, it was an, it's an enjoyable memory, and you know, made made the doubles more interesting. <laughs> it was, it was funny because, like I said, it was the last medal of the whole Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, and so we were like seeing it home, as it were, seeing the tournament home. And I had people in my ears saying, you know, just just keep this going. And had I known that morning that we were going to be commentating on the last medal of the games, if someone had said to me, right, this is what you're going to be doing today, I would have really worried about it. And I would have been like, I haven't played squash. I'm a tennis guy. I don't know Laura. I mean, the permutations are infinite virtually, but I know I would have wound myself up. But the fact of the matter was, because we were just there and they all of a sudden said, every other medal has now finished. (laughs) This is the only thing left. You've got to see it through. And I didn't have time to think about it. Actually, my memory of it was that I really enjoyed it. I think I just remember Faye, who was obviously at the Commonwealth Games, who was managing me at the time when she was working the Commonwealth Games, saying, you know, there's an opportunity to get in the commentary box and try something a bit different. And Nick's playing and um, it was for the gold medal, wasn't it? And yeah, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. And I would still even now, probably post-career, like to get into a bit more commentary. Yeah, no, you were very good. I remember you were very calm, very unflappable obviously helped that you knew what you were talking about because the thing about doubles in squash is there there are so many stoppages because everyone just runs into each other four people on a court and all that time I'd just be like oh they've run into each other Laura and then you you would you would pick up but uh before we get into your book your lessons and there are so many so your book which is called all in becoming a world champion but before we get into that I do want to ask about squash really because squash has had, in my opinion, a bit of a rough ride in terms of, for example, two things. First of all, getting into the Olympics. And second of all, in terms of the coverage it gets. So when you won the British Open for the second time at the age of 33, which is the Wimbledon of squash, it got less coverage in the press than Johanna Conta reaching a third round of the Miami Masters that year. As someone who reached world number one, who's arguably the greatest British female player of all time, I mean, you would probably go, arguably? How dare you? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like, what's your take on it from the inside? I know it must be frustrating. Yeah, it is for sure. And you're right, The it was actually the first British Open in 2013 that was a bit more shocking to me because for me, that was massive. I'd won major titles before, but the British Open and the World Championships sort of stand above the rest, really. And for us, winning a British Open is sort of the equivalent of a World Championships, like a Wimbledon would be in tennis. And I won it and I expected, and because obviously it was at home as well and the crowd was huge and it was was amazing. We'd had it on on Hull Football City's ground outside. And to wake up the next morning, I sort of expected to be like, right, media and da 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 And there wasn't really anything. There was little bits here and there and stuff. And it was a bit of a shock. I thought, oh, gosh, like, this is just what it's going to be like, I guess. But then on the flip side of that, when I won the World Championships, there was a huge pickup for squash anyway. Maybe it was because my expectations were so low from the British Open. But there was a huge pickup for the World Championships. And I think that's probably because... World Championships does it does what it says on the tin, doesn't it? World champion in any sport, you know that you're a world champion. So 
that sort of picked up a lot of coverage and I spent the day at the BBC and so that felt really special and that was was really nice so it's been mixed and but the world champ that I always sort of have said the two things that have stood out as like clear media kind of favorite you know like where I've had attention has been world championships and MBE actually when I was I was retired when I got my MBE. So Mm. um, I was almost shocked as well with how much that got. But again, it's something that transcends the sport. And that's what I think has been, has been probably, you know, what's happened over the course of my career. That's when something transcends squash in terms of a title, then that's when the press are interested. So yeah, and you, you grow up knowing that and you accept it and you're not in it for the fame and fortune. You're in it because you love the sport and you want to better yourself. And like everything we've just been talking about off air, I'm a better person for being a professional squash player and I wouldn't change anything for the world. So, you know, it's, it's all good really. And then, uh, and then just in answer to your Olympic yeah. question, I, it, I, I literally can't put my any brain space there because it makes no spe- sense to me. And, and also it's just completely out of my control that, you know, I know they say control the controllables as an athlete, but that is just something that is so far away from anything that I can control. I just refuse to put any any brain space there. Um, got uh, you know, while I was playing, I had enough yeah. to worry about. So it's a real shame, and I hope one day a junior somewhere can compete for an Olympic gold medal. But if not, a World Championships, British Open, US Open will have to do. It's really, from my perspective, I think, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. And you see a lot of, you know, while it would be nice to a <laughs> and a bit more money for like you see on the tennis and the football side and to maybe have a little bit more sort of public recognition maybe for what you've achieved at the same time there's a really nice thing about just being Laura on my street and the neighbors think oh you were a fairly good squash player and you know people probably like at my club I'm not even sure people know kind of really who I am and then it always surprises me when like my MBE for example people come up and say wow congratulations and you're like oh do you know do you know who I am I've been a member here 20 years and they they do and that's really nice but they're not so outwardly with it that maybe they would be if it was Andy Murray and he was there and they probably want pictures all the time because that's a big deal and I think just having tiny little tastes of it along the way is something that makes you realize, could you live that lifestyle? Do you want to live that lifestyle if it was if it was permanent? And I think the answer is 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 probably no, just from what we've talked about with that centering and and the ego and how things can go to your head. Uh, I don't yeah, I yeah. become more than just Laura the person. I, I become Laura the squash player. And I think for anyone when you start to associate with yeah, yeah. what you do rather than who you are you're not on a good track. I interviewed Tony Belly recently and he said he met Floyd Mayweather and he was like, I've never met someone so detached from reality. Uh, He had one woman massaging his head, one woman massaging his shoulders, one woman massaging his feet while he's talking about earning $900 million. He's like, he's lost touch with reality. And and actually that's tragic. What's more important, the money that can buy you stuff or being able to relate to people as people. I listened to that podcast. And again, I just, it sort of was a bit sad to hear because- It is sad. It's not, it is it's sad. not that it's not great to earn 900 million, but it's what is really sad is not knowing who you can trust and who you can rely on. And the big thing for me was having honesty with myself, but also having honesty from the people around me. And I actually don't think you can really have honesty with yourself if you haven't got people who are being honest with you, totally. with you around you. Um, That's what relationships are about, in my opinion. 
Yeah. People have that romantic idea of relationships and that's true. But as well, it's like having a mirror. And obviously in your case, that was amplified because not only were you <laughs> married to Danny, he was your blooming coach. And then you detail it. You can actually see how even that aspect of your relationship developed because yeah. you know, it sounded like it could give you a bit of a tough time and that softened over time. Yeah, it really did. It really did soften over time as as actually he worked on himself, you know, and and sort of started to. And this is a big thing for me going forward as a coach and trying to learn off Danny and DP, who was also my coach. It's, yeah. it's the one thing that they gave me towards the end of my career was whether I win or whether I lose a squash match, that doesn't affect their lives in a positive or negative way. They're happy if I win and they're a bit down if I lose, but there isn't actually an, an impact on their lives. And that for an athlete is huge because that takes a level of pressure off. And, and with Danny, it was always tough because we would go home together and I would be sad or upset or down for a few days and he'd be trying to snap me out of it. Whereas DP was brilliant because he could almost become a bit absurdist with it. He would, you know, he would just be like, there's more to life than squash. You hit, you know, he, he was particularly harsh with Nick yeah, Matthew, yeah. who he also coached. He was like, look at him strutting around the venue, hitting a little black ball against a wall. He'd walk over there 10 metres away from the squash court. No one would know who he was. <laughs> you know? And he th- flipped it for us. And oh, he would just make it. it absurd. And I don't think that's a bad thing, really. And probably a few high-profile athletes could do with that. <laughs> Oh, 100%. As you were saying that, I'm thinking, I've got to get him on. I love that view of things. You know, sport <laughs> is play. And it's so easy for sports people. But for all of us, like we all can identify with what we do. But to identify, particularly as a sports person, with your results. It took us a long, a long time, particularly with Danny, to get there. And there was one breakthrough moment where we did a lot about. And this, I think, is, is something that can hugely cross over into non-sporting life about role clarification and I was getting myself in a little bit of a mess about you know I remember being on a flight to the Cayman Islands you know unbelievable venue we had our world championships there in 2012 I think it was and it had cost us you know a thousand pound for Danny's flight probably six or seven hundred pound for the hotel because I needed my own room to stay with Danny rather than using my room as part of the tournament You've got food, you know, everything that goes with actually being away from home for 10 days. And I'm on the flight thinking, if I lose first round, you know, we've, we've effectively probably lost about two grand here. And that's, a, you know, you don't really need to be thinking about that sort of stuff as an athlete when you're trying to win um, and you're trying to perform at the best that you can. And I sort of had the courage, I think, and this is what I would sort of say, and it's about communication and about honesty. And it did take a lot of courage to voice those opinions. And I was on the flight and I remember saying to Danny, I'm a bit nervous. And, you know, it was like, well, you're going to be, it's a world champs. Da, 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 da. But at the end, of the, I was like, no, but I'm more than that. I'm nervous about, you know, the pressure that, you know, it's cost us a lot of money to come to this tournament. I know that the benefit of having you with me is is huge. It means you know I don't have to socialize so much with the other girls. I can keep myself in my own little bubble. I've got someone to practice with. I've got help between games. Like I mean, him being there at tournaments over the years was worth the money a hundredfold. But it doesn't stop in that very moment on the flight worrying about that. And he came up with this kind of like role clarification thing that's actually in his book, and it works brilliantly with parents, particularly of sports kids, where they want one thing and the kid wants another and this role clarification. So he said to me, 
tell me three things that you know you want from me when I'm there and I said well I kind of you know want you to hit with me in the mornings if I've got that slot um I would like you to coach me between games and you know kind of just come support me in and around the tournament and they were my three things and he went I can do that you know and that's that's all that's all that I'm here for and I went right okay great sat back in my seat and he sort of looked at me and I was like what well I get my three things as well it's like what do you get three things selfish athlete mindset he went yeah I went okay go on he went I want you to give 100% in every single match that you play I said okay deal he said I want you to say thank you after a match if I've helped you between games or if I've hit with you in the morning just say thank you not that I wouldn't have done but you know kind of just really go out of your way and sort of say that and I was like okay and it was actually a good reminder and lastly, I want you to let me have a holiday. So when I'm not doing all of those things, I want to have a holiday. I'm going to the Cayman Islands. I want to go and play around a golf. I want to go to the beach. I want to sunbathe. I want to eat food. I want to. So when I'm not doing the things that you've asked me to do, I want to have a holiday. And the weight that was lifted more from his three points than my three points was like all of a sudden that money was worth it because he was having a holiday. I lost in the final that year to Nicole was my first world championship final. And it was just one of the best events that, wow. you know, considering I lost in the final. And yeah. I think when you even talk about that with relationships, you know, whether it's a relationship with a parent, a partner, you know, a job, like sometimes just having that simple role clarification of the three things you're both after can really, you know, make things be seen a little bit clearer for both. Oh, I think that's brilliant. I'm going to nick that. And it doesn't yeah. sound like it was a coincidence that you went on and reached the final. So you're there stressing yeah. on the plane yeah. and you had this chat and it's just like you said, this huge weight off your shoulders. Yeah. And that comes, if we go even one step further back, and I'll allude to your website here and your reading list. How do you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, And Daring Greatly by uh, Brené Brown, which is just vulnerability. So yeah. you had to be vulnerable in that moment to admit yeah. not only that you were anxious, but that you were anxious about something that was not essentially squash related. And yeah. by being vulnerable, it had this snowball effect that strengthened your relationship, made you both have a better time, stop worrying about the money, and you reached the final. If yeah. that isn't a ringing endorsement for vulnerability, I don't know what is. I know, that's true. And, and you know, when I think about it, I think that, that helped me unbelievably. And I have, to, I have told that story to people who I think it would help. But with kids and parents, there's an element of vulnerability from the parents' side to put themselves out there and go, I don't always know what my kid actually wants from this. So, you know, when Danny wrote his book, The Winning Parent, it's a big chapter in there about the parents sort of getting on the level with the kid and going you know, what do you want from this tournament? And how do you want me to behave? You know, they think that they're on the balcony shouting down encouragement and pulling faces and bringing them gel packs and bananas and drinks for between games. And the kids like, I just want to have fun. I just want to, and, the, yeah, and I think yeah. like sometimes it's a bit of it, or the parent might be like dead chill, dead relaxed, turned up halfway through the first game, don't want to put any pressure on. And the kid's like, I just want you to be there from the start so I can look up and settle my nerves or if you don't have that discussion, you don't know what each other wants. And it really, really surprised so me. And I'm married to Danny that what he said, you know what I mean? And I, and I think Honestly, he, yeah. So we might have to wrap this up so that I can go and have a, have this conversation with my wife. Cause you know, <laughs> no, but as you were saying that, so when I was growing up, I played, I was played a lot of sport, was quite sporty, played rugby and 
my dad would come and watch me and I would occasionally hear him sort of go, come on, Simon, or runs, you know, but not very volubly. <laughs> but if I think what I needed, he later said to me, oh, I think that you are better at rugby than you think. Yeah. And and I've had people say that to me since I went to a school reunion. And, and I think I covered that up by, oh, I don't want to train that hard or, yeah. you know, I'd mess about all those kind of things. But really was just to cover for I don't really believe in my ability. But in hindsight, I, I had it. So actually, in a role thing there, if I'd have been aware of it, perhaps would have been for him to say, look, Simon, you're better than you think you are. And then I would have just gone, hmm. And, you know, that would have made such a difference. So I think that's a brilliant exercise. Yeah. Um, so yeah. thank you for sharing that. One for you. Yeah. And this was shared with me with from Clark Carlisle. So we have a six-year-old and their year at school has been particularly badly affected by COVID because it, they went from first year, which is about play, into second year, which is about kind of real school, if you like, but without the transition because they were at home so it was a real shock to the system and she was getting a bit uppity should we say anyway Clark Carlisle shared this brilliant thing where it's at night you say for him it was three things with us it's got to about five one thing that's made you happy one thing that's made you sad one thing that you're worried about one thing that you're excited about and then make your own up whatever yeah anyway and I thought I'll try this so I went in to try it with her and uh, I'm like, tell me something made you happy. And her first reaction was like, definitely not. What's this <laughs> school, you know? And it was only when I shared what made me happy yeah, and or what made me worried. And she now loves it. And I think, like you say, it's her knowing that we feel just like she does. And it normalizes. If I had known my parents were insecure messes when I was growing up, what a difference that would have made, you know? I so. Know. <laughs> you just put your parents particularly on a pedestal don't you like these perfect little these perfect human beings that you just want to you know that you're looking up to and it is true that you have this perfect you you idolize them a little bit in some ways and then and then sometimes there can be a bit of a letdown as you get older I mean you know we all love our parents but they're not quite this switched on sort of got it together people that you think they are and that's only the same for me in my squash thing I said it in an interview the other day that I had this mindset, you know, this reputation of being really mentally strong. And one of the reasons in the book was to say, you thought I was mentally strong. I, I did not have it together all the time. And so people's perceptions, whether it's a parent or another athlete or, a, you know, a competitor, are just can be so far away with what's going on within that person's mind. It's massive. Oh, hugely. And yeah. like you say, it was interesting reading that about you. You know, you were known as this mentally strong player but you had all these worries and, and the same I had with Alistair Cook you know he's known as mentally strong but like worries and anxieties and stuff are normal if you don't have them something's wrong you know like yeah. you're not going to overturn 250,000 years of evolution like you're gonna be worried and, and we'll touch on a couple of some of your best worries imminently <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway quick word on parents you detail in the in the book you know, your relationship, obviously, with your father, who on the one hand was very, like, so supportive of you and your yeah. squash. But then there was also that one experience, I think, where you lost and you obviously had tried your hardest. But as can happen to all of us, you didn't perform to your best for whatever reason. And he had obviously been pushing himself really hard with work. So he was tired and perhaps a little on edge. But it was like he was annoyed with you that you had lost. So I just wonder, you know, what are your recollections or not so much recollections? What are your reflections on the impact things like that had on you, how they played out in terms of the patterns you have, and perhaps as well how you're now able to, a bit like, let's say, the fame thing in squash, 
I don't know about you, like I'm quite grateful in some ways, you know, that old thing, oh, your parents mess you up, right? But yes, family, discuss. Yeah, um, I mean, that story in the book at the time was was pretty tough. And it was that, you know, my dad, like you said, was extremely supportive, um, wanted the best for me, was also, you know, kind of very expectant in terms of, if he's going to put his time and his money in, then he expects a certain level of dedication back. I'm kind of even a believer of that myself now that, you know, would probably expect that of, of the people that I'm coaching and maybe of my own kids and stuff where it's like, you know, if I'm going to put this effort in, then all I want is at least effort back. But, you know, my dad was, you know, had a rough upbringing himself, joined the army, had a huge amount of discipline. And that was sort of obviously, as you do kind of pass that on to your kids and and it was tough and but what he gave me was a huge amount of of competitive edge and determination to i was going to say win but it was more determination to not lose yeah. and i think there's a big difference there and that was a struggle going into the professional game because that's where you get and and that story that we talk about where it, it didn't go particularly well he was was angry because I'd lost really more so than the performance because generally if I performed well I was number one in England I was generally winning and that was where it was quite hard to deal with and when your fear of failure comes out you can't you can't perform well and that was what was really tough and I had took me a lot of years to get over that fear of failure um going into matches with nerves and worry and being scared of losing rather than winning and I still say to this point I don't know if it kind of resonate you can resonate with people but the feeling and the sting and the pain of losing was always so much worse and so much more than the high of the win for me and I th- I think that that's a really good a good point to make and I think it'll be several athlete, athletes that are like that right up till the end of my career it hurt so much if I lost whereas if I won it was almost like I'm so proud and happy that I haven't got that horrible feeling that I've lost <laughs> which might quite might sound yeah, quite yeah. sad and that that changed over the years a little bit where at least I wasn't crippled with nerves and fear like I was early on in my career but having said all of that with without that and without that kind of push like little bit of a push and that little bit of a expectancy to perform well you know, I don't know I'd have, if I'd have become the player that I did. I was determined and feisty and kind of would leave everything on there. The amount of times that people would say you had no right to win that match and you did and you found a way. And I wanted to call the book Find A Way, but there's another book that I absolutely love that was called that title, so I couldn't. Um, but it made so much sense to me, uh-huh. like Laura Find A Way. My physio used to call me that. I was just like, you'd be sat there and, you know, she'd be down yeah. in the game and then before you know it, she's she's nicked it. And that came all from my dad as well and from that expectation and that drive to kind of go after it and win. And the other huge positive of that story of of my dad was was that actually when I sat down to write the book, I was a bit worried about telling that story. And I don't want to portray him as as nasty or horrible because he was hugely supportive, gave a lot of time and a lot of money, as as did my did my mum as well. And actually, Eleanor, who who helped, you know, who edited the book, said, "Have a conversation with him. Let's put his opinion in there." And it was totally different to what I thought. I mean, I didn't have a clue at fifteen, what sixteen, what what my dad yeah, was yeah. going through, and how tired he was, and how little money we had, and how we'd have to go and do a little bit of work on the side between my matches because he then could claim back the petrol for the tournament and things like that, and how he was working, you know, eighteen, twenty-hour days and driving all over the country. 
so of course like that now being a being an adult <laughs> makes a lot more sense to me and maybe there's something to be said for like that role clarification linking back in maybe maybe if I'd known that even at the time yeah, for like totally. 15, 16 I'd have probably understood it yeah but also I guess even the fact that again that you asked his opinion so that again was like it can be a, perhaps an uncomfortable conversation to have with a parent and like you say you're thinking of putting this bit in of how you felt unaware of perhaps how he might feel about it yeah but then you had yeah. this conversation that potentially mm. a lot of people would have avoided yeah he then is like no this is how I felt you're like oh I get it right and yeah. and as a result something that's been there in the background for yeah. 20 years has a completely different hue and yeah. just on on the parent stuff so you know life can only be understood in in hindsight because it's I think it's easy to have I'm not for a second suggesting your childhood was difficult or anything like that but like difficult moments and at the time perhaps think oh like why me or this is unfair this shouldn't be happening the whole resistance to reality thing which I know you understand (laughs) but then in hindsight you realize well it's made me who I am now and and actually I can be grateful for it Like, like there's definitely for me doing this podcast, doing a lot of the work I do is born of the fact that what's going on in various aspects of my life that at the time was really painful, but now I'm really grateful for it. So I just think a big thing I always bang on about is just our minds are so quick to label things as, oh, this is good, or this is bad, or that was good, that was bad, that should have happened, that shouldn't happen. But, you know, no, like, you you know, your dad gave you a bit of a rollicking for not playing well on that occasion for his reasons and as a result that contributed to you going on and winning two British Opens winning the World Championship winning being world number one and still having this kind of level-headed approach to it you know so let's ditch the labels of of right and wrong right right, a quick one on the funding thing so the two greatest British squash players have been in my lifetime you and Nick Matthew yeah and Quick shout out to Nick. He and I have chatted. He's got to come on soon, uh, but you got him first. Um, But neither of you actually were, by a lot of people, seen as the most likely to make it. And in your case, that was particularly pronounced because I don't know how you stumbled across it, but basically (laughs) you found out that you were getting less funding than two of your English colleagues and were considered to have less potential. And so you stomped in shall we say I don't want to say that I'm only saying that because I know what happened when the Danny overslept and you didn't go for that run and you turn up at the door and get him a hard time so <laughs> so, um, so so you went in and confronted yeah. him and was like what the hell's going on but yeah yeah like so just tell me about this and then how this then again bad at the time yet it actually gave you a real fuel yeah I mean particularly particularly harsh situation I think basically I came up through the juniors with um, two other English players, um, Alison Waters and Jenny Duncalf. Jenny was about a year older. Alison's about six months younger. I was in the same age group really as Alison and kind of was, we were one and two in England. I was one, she was two. We had some battles through the juniors. The three of us all played world junior team together and we won. So we had a great junior career together really. Um, Obviously competitors and, and all of that sort of stuff. And then when we set out on tour, and this was the thing, this one of the reasons that I think all three of us did really well. Jenny was, I think, got to world number two, Alison world number three, obviously myself. That's a pretty big success rate from one single age group of squash. And yeah, when we set out on tour together, 
Alison and Jenny just just fired up the rankings so fast, um, kind of left me in the in the dust really. And slowly but surely, I sort of started to kind of get up there myself a little bit. It just took me a little bit long. I mean, I'm talking maybe a year or two. It wasn't kind of a lifetime. So yeah, just I think they were probably about. I don't know, maybe seven, eight in the world. I think I was probably maybe 12 or 13. So not a huge gap. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, still top 15 in the world and all of us were doing really well. And I just happened to be in the England squash office one day um, back probably, you know, just before everything was digitalized and there was a file open on the side just where I was stood. And I happened to look down and look at it and it had all of the numbers of what everyone was getting paid like for funding um, we used to get a monthly allowance from Sport England and that was um, well, the squash wood and then squash distribute it out, you know, and it was it was an, enough of an amount, I think, like a couple of hundred quid a month that made me think, wow, like I'm literally four or five places lower than these guys. And that that didn't seem fair. So, yeah, just basically picked up the phone straight away to our performance director at the time it was Peter Hurst and arranged a meeting and just went into the meeting and basically said, what what is going on you know how it, it it wasn't necessarily the money it was just the fairness of it I think um yeah and the yeah, feeling yeah. like I wasn't as valuable to them and this had obviously and strangely enough this DP was the national coach David Pearson who was my coach at the end of my towards the end of my career I won all my major titles with him coaching me I wasn't coached by him at the time he was the national coach and he'd clearly said to Peter Hurst the reason she's not getting as much is because she's probably not going to make it. Um, and he never told me DP had said it, but obviously knowing DP now and being super close and him being my personal coach for, for years, he said that he basically said that. Um, and, and Peter was left to kind of relay the message. And I, I sort of stomped out and was like, well, I'm not having, you know, I'm not having that. And how do you know? And it's not fair. And we're talking four places and da, da. And I think I sort of say in the book that, that drove me for a long time, you know, in training sessions and with dedication and commitment and getting those extra one or 2% out of each training session so that I could try and close that gap. And I think it's strange, you know, what you were just saying before about, you know, I probably would buy him a pint now if I, if I had the opportunity, because, you know, it was, it was such a painful thing at the time that turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me. It's hard to embrace this idea that we just don't know going forward, going back. And the more, therefore, you can... like It's totally understandable why that would knock you off. And yeah. I think you deserve credit for stomping in there and like taking one rather than just, let's say, bottling it up and then going moaning to other people, which leads yeah. us on to the other thing. But the more you can be okay with whatever happens... Because you just don't know. Like this, yeah. we add so many layers of stress, don't we? To this shouldn't yeah. happen. This shouldn't happen. And the more you can let go of that and be like, okay, I can't possibly know whether this will turn out to be a good thing or a bad thing. You just can take off so much stress of your life. But that doesn't, at the same time, mean that you don't take a stand as you did, which yeah. you know I think is a really important thing. And you've done that many, many times throughout your career. <laughs> so you went to speak to the person who was dealing with that but you could have and some people I know from my own experience in working in places you, you get the people who moan about where they work and they moan together right and it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle right and you yeah. talk about so you're going to have to remind me of the German philosopher's name who talks about Das Mann and the danger 
of just falling into fitting, of gossip and losing touch with yourself as a result. And I think this is obviously something that you use to great effect in your career with help from Danny and et cetera. But also it's so relevant to life. Yeah, from a, from a squash perspective, it was um, it was becoming a lot about the they. And that that kind of, I think that's actually one of Danny's, Danny's paragraph in the book where he could see, you know, times within my career where you would fall into that trap of becoming one of the group. And it was one probably linking back into what I said about the Cayman Islands trip, about having Danny and DP there and sort of taking yourself out of the they. And I thought it was really interesting as well. I know you've had Ronnie O'Sullivan on the podcast and I, you know, big fan and read his book. And he talked a lot about how he became one of everyone. Everyone gets a little bit more friendly with you when you're losing. And it's interesting because you think they'd get more friendly with you when you were winning. But when you talk about your competitors, it's sort of like, and he talked a lot about this in his book about you almost become one of the pack. Yeah, we're all a bit, we're all a bit of a loser together, to be honest, you know. And it's not that, you know, that's a bit harsh because they're not losers, they're professional athletes and they're all very, very successful in their own right. But it's sort of like together. And I learned a lot about a lot of this watching Nicole and how she she conducted herself at tournaments with a physio, a coach, sometimes a psychologist. She'd have maybe one or two of the fret girls that she was friendly with, who she'd train with, who were always a little bit lower ranked. And she used to go on and, you know, she'd just keep an air of mystery around her. And she was never one of the they. And she never slotted into what was what was right with the group or she did it her way. And she went about being on tour her way. And and I learned a lot from that and tried to sort of con- conduct myself in the in that way. And the more I sort of lost or got involved in any of the gossip circles, the more you get dragged into the, those little kind of toxic situations where you find yourself gossiping about other other players or other situations, or did you see how she behaved on court or what did you see she lost or she's, you know, you talk a lot about the invisible pecking order as well, about these young girls that are trying to rise up and they don't care about what you've achieved or what you've done and they'll just get stuck into you. And yeah, it was a, it was a Heidegger, uh, you know, terminology from Heidegger philosopher on that, you know, that kind of the they really. And Danny was huge in helping me not be part of that and also realize it. And it, and it, it really resonated so much when I heard Ronnie O'Sullivan, you know, really talking about, about that. And it, it's so true how when you become one of the they that you almost can get caught up in this vicious toxic circle of like, you know, gossip really. And it doesn't help anyone. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I, I think I read a quote somewhere or heard someone say it. I don't know where it came from, but you know, as a human being, you're not a tree. You don't, you haven't put roots down. So if you don't like your position, get up and move. And it's sort of like that sort of thing. And if someone's unhappy, the first place that you really need to look is within yourself and change your situation. You have complete, you know, you, you have the ability to change your situation. I'm not saying it's always going to be easy, um it's it's more likely to be hard but whether it's an unhappy relationship or an unhappy job or you know the the money issues it's sort of just like you can change your situation you can make not everybody obviously if with the money stuff but you can you can move to a smaller house you can take pressure off you don't have to have the fancy car you can you can you know I know a lot of people and a lot of my friends who have jobs, for example, that they hate, but they sort of have to keep going because they've set themselves up with the lifestyle of that job. 
So I can't get out of the job that I hate because I've got the lifestyle that matches the job that I've got. And it's sort of like, well, you can, you can downsize the house, downsize the car, quit the job, retrain, do what you want to do. But that that's a huge sacrifice and a huge effort. And there's not many people prepared prepared to do that because it's so, so tough. But I think the best people are the one and who are, and when you say the best, I don't mean the best people. I mean, the, more, the most content, centered, happy. Yeah feel like they're fulfilling themselves Centered. in their life yeah are the ones that aren't up at you know whatever o'clock to do a workout and then get into work and you know they're on the rat race you know to do, you know and, and before you know it life's passed you by and it's I guess it's sort of that attitude that I always wanted to have with my squash but now in retirement as well I want to have time um time for me is is worth more than anything and that's what gives me probably the most amount of fulfillment and happiness and getting out in nature with the dog every day and having those moments that give me the energy to then go after what I really want and you know try to keep my life quite simple and probably you know not pushing kind of those expectations of what you should do as a professional athlete has really helped so I don't know if that if saying all that is actually going to help anybody but I think sometimes it's a realization that there are ways to change your situation. And if you are not willing to do that to change your situation, then at least, if nothing else, be accepting of of the lifestyle you've chosen. And that's kind of nice too. I was thinking that, and I'm glad you summed it up in that way. To quote one of our mutual favorite authors slash teachers, <laughs> um, Eckhart Tolle, who says, you know, either accept a situation or change it. Yeah. Everything else is madness. So moaning about it is mad. Um, okay, accept situation or change it. I do like a segue. So let's talk. Let let's talk about you changing your grip. Now this now this might sound like anyone said what to change their grip. This is going to be technicals. Is going to be if I don't like squash or sport. No, like I think this is um, it's more than that, isn't it? It's the it's the bravery to do something and stick with something you know, that, you know, is going to be painful in the short term for long term results, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think when you link back into the grip and the change, yeah, like, obviously, it's a technical squash, um, a squash issue that happened. But I think the thing that stood out was, again, uh, you'll love this, because it's DP and his absurdism and all of that. But if I can put a picture in your mind about DP, Danny and I call him uh, Columbo. Um, from the old TV show, yeah. you know, the, poli- <laughs> the kind of detective who one pretends more thing. doesn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one more thing. yeah. I, I pretend that <laughs> I don't really know what's going on, but I'm like three steps ahead of you. And then I'm just yeah. going to nail it, you know, kind of nail it at the last minute. And he walks around and he's kind of, you know, I've got a bit of a sore foot and I'm just going to get a coffee from Dunkin' Donuts when we're in America and all of that. And, you know, so quite often you almost think, is a bit clueless, but he's an absolute genius. And so I've sort of gone over there, probably started to get a bit big for my boots. You know, I'm up to world number two. And this was right before winning my first British Open. And I think I just sort of gone to him, you know, at the at the end of the session. I must have obviously been thinking, right, what's coming next with my career and the coaching and everything like that. And I sort of said, so is there anything, you know, that you've been, you know, that we can work on that I can get my teeth into? Probably thinking he'd probably say, no, you're doing great. Like looking for a bit of a backward compliment Validation, and he's yeah. gone well yeah. I've been thinking for a while that you know maybe um could have a little look at your grip and he, he sort of says my face just went what my grip 
because obviously as a squash player, as you all know, a tennis player, as you know, anyone who's got something that is it's just so fundamental and so basic, like, you know, I teach anyone I'm working with the grip in the first session, because if you don't get it right, there's a ceiling on your improvement and it's that. And it's I'm like, thinking, um, it's, it's like learning to write with your opposite hand. I mean, it's that, it feels that big, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's... and he saw, I said, well, what do you mean my grip? He's like, well, you know, what I think you need to do is just open your grip a little bit on the forehand and what that will, you know, technical term, it'll, it'll basically, you're not you're, at the moment, the way that the gripping is in your hand, you're leading with the wrist, which blocks the drop shot and doesn't let it go in as accurately and as uh, fizzy and you know if you can change open your grip you'll have more of a short game you'll become more of a you know kind of attacking presence and you da, 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 da. so off we go session goes on and with me generally um I'm, I'm trusting i believe in him but you know sometimes there is a little bit of resistance in terms of you know i don't know if it's the right thing and i'm not very good at it and i can't do it and you know he's like give it a chance da, da, da. so we have the session and, and off I go home and, and, you know, Danny, Danny came with me generally did with my technical sessions. We could go home and work on it. And I got a bit upset in the car on the way home. And I was just like, well, what have I, you know, I've been doing it wrong this whole time. I feel like a beginner. Why has he sort of said this now? And, you know, Danny tried to kind of, you know, put it in perspective and rationalize it for me. And, it took me a couple of days to get my head around it. But I think now looking back on the story, and Danny's actually using this in his PhD and he's, he's put that story down into a really cool, small anecdote. And I think it was DP's way of of sort of almost, almost kind of putting me back in my place again a little bit with, you know, I know, I know what we need to do. I know the bigger picture. Just get down there and do as you're told. You might be world number two, but there's so much more to go. Kind of making me just 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 question myself and my own beliefs and my own ability and and you know always in a really kind way and coming through it and and you know it was it was a huge change it made a small change that made a huge change to my game that made a huge change to my results and um you know it was generally like that with my career working with dp yeah don't be scared to you know, challenge the traditional way of of doing things, particularly if it's like, oh my God, this is going to take ages. This is going to be painful. You know, if yeah. it's going to pay off in the long term as it did with you. And again, I, I don't know, is there any, are there any kind of life examples? I mean, you, there are, I think there are so many, there are so many ways that that could be applied. Yeah, I think, I think kind of the way that I approached it, even in whether or not it was a hundred percent the right way, but that questioning and the, you know, the intrigue of, you know, you're one of the best coaches in the world. What else have, what else have you got to give me? The honesty that there's a belief that I'm not, you know, I might be world number two or whatever I was at the time, but I, there's more to come. What is there to come? And having that kind of open honesty and the bravery to kind of ask those questions and to not just be satisfied with the way that things are going and I'm having quite a good run and to trust the people around you and to believe in the improvements of what what they're saying and where you can do I think a lot of people wait for feedback or want positive feedback but you know you if you can if you can step out of your comfort zone and sort of go like where can I improve you don't hear a lot of people in the workplace sort of asking those sort of questions do you a lot of the time um so maybe maybe kind of opening up you know, chatting to a boss chatting chatting to a colleague what could I do a little bit better is there anything that we could change what can we do brainstorm you know things like that that 
I think in sport you have to because if you're not going forward, you, you're going backwards. And I don't think you can yeah. afford not to be asking those sort of questions. And those are the ones that make it to the very, very top of the game. I was watching the yeah. tennis last night and Mark Petchy was absolutely laying into Richard Gasquet for not changing. He were, and we were, me and Danny were watching it going, oh, he's harsh. Like he's properly laying agree. into him. He's playing the doll. And he was basically going, he's a great player. He hasn't changed at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, a, a great backhand will make you a great player, a, a brilliant for a great forehand will make you a championship player, and he's changed nothing. And and I just he was just going for him, and you were and but then as an athlete, you're sort of thinking that's what you get. Everything's under the microscope for ten or fifteen years, and you've got someone sat on the sideline going, he's not changed, he's not gone out of his comfort zone, and I think you can hide in business a little bit, and you know work and life in general, and I think the more you can ask those questions and try and constantly better yourself then the, the more you know you're going to get out of your life probably when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Uh, do you know what? I've got so much to add to that. I'm so glad you said that. I didn't actually watch that match, but um, so I've written a book and I actually use Richard Gasquet as an example in exactly that way because I compare him to, say, Andy <laughs> Murray, right? Richard Gasquet yeah. and as well Gail Monfils, they were considered yeah. greater talents than Andy or greater yeah. prospects than Andy Murray. But Andy Murray turned over every stone. If you remember, he was an absolute weakling when he started, right? And then he turned himself into this absolute hard one changed his forehand whereas I think gas like you say Gasquet hasn't hasn't changed and um so I've got this whole whole chapter about this so you've made me I was a bit worried about it but actually you've just um, made me feel a lot better about it but and I, <laughs> I think a big part of it actually comes back to what you and I have spoken about I don't know whether it was before the, we started recording or, or since but about that you know you are not what you do so therefore I think if your self-worth let's say is tied up in my talent or I can do this yeah. well, then you're less likely to be open to perhaps 
challenging the way you do things because it's like I should this is who I am and it's like but whereas I think if you can separate your self-worth and know that you know you your self-worth is intrinsic and therefore trying to improve as you knew by the way that DP and Danny treated you will never affect your self-worth it almost frees you up to do what it takes to to grow and to improve and I think Andy's done that you clearly did that and shoved it up you know the British squash people who decided with the funding and all that kind of stuff. Um, as well, another thing I was just thinking in terms of your grip change, uh, uh, you know, and, and and something uh, that a lot of sports people I've spoken to have, have mentioned is that, you know, when you play sport, you get that feedback and you actively have to seek the feedback. And I yeah. spoke to Lewis Moody recently and he does um, commentary and he'll be like, right, so what do I need to do to improve? And they're like, no, you're doing great. Just carry on doing what you're doing. It's like, well, what does yeah. that mean? You know, it's really <laughs> frustrating. And, and actually sort of seeking that feedback. And again, to use sport as a metaphor for life, I'm not going to name any names, but so you had a coach, you had Danny, you had, I mean, all sorts of people around you giving you input and and you would listen for it. And um, I remember a, a couple I knew were going through marital strife. We're on, we're on shaky ground here, but we'll, I won't <laughs> name names. They were having marital strife. And I said, you know, they were like, oh, he was like, oh, we can't communicate. And, and I was like, look, what? why don't you consider like couples counseling, you know, like someone who's an expert, you hope, um, who can help you to with an area that you're clearly not skilled at. And he's like, no, we're adults. We should be able to do that. And I think like, like how could it be okay? You know, you as a squash player or any athlete who's the best in the world at what you do, you're still getting input. Yet in other areas of life, people are reluctant to get that same feedback or to seek it out. And actually, you know, sadly, they did they did split up. Whereas I think, you know, you run into it, you run into an area of, you know, a metaphoric life grip change requirement. And, <laughs> you know, you know, why not seek out that help and that feedback, even if it is uncomfortable and, and that kind of thing? Oh, Does that like make more sense? Often than not, it is uncomfortable. I mean, it's so uncomfortable. There, there's nothing there's nothing about having a lesson where you've got to go through a technical change. There's nothing about having a psychology session that's comfortable. There's nothing about having a conversation with the performance director that's comfortable. Um, in fact, playing a world championship final is not comfortable. <laughs> um, you learn to live outside of your comfort zone is probably what I'm trying to get at. And that's probably where sport is very different to life and I think the more that you realize that kind of, you know, life could be, it's okay to not always be in your comfort zone. In your book, you talked about really early on, you you travel alone to tournaments and this was before mobile. So you couldn't be in touch with people. And there was one time you were picked up at the airport and there was some guy and he was like, oh, the family are away. You're a young lady, a young woman. And you're in the car thinking, oh, my God, I'm about to be kidnapped. Yeah, you got in a strange car. Now, I'm not saying for a second here that people should be getting in strangers' cars, but, like, you know, you went through this stuff so often that was out of your comfort zone that helped you grow, whereas now it feels to me like there's a lot of something makes me feel bad, therefore I'm going to avoid it or I shouldn't do it, that kind of thing. I think it was just putting yourself in those situations where you had to figure it out for yourself. You were completely and utterly reliant and dependent on yourself. And that was it. And, you know, I, I, we were laughing about that. I didn't just get in a stranger's car, but 
flights got delayed early hours in the morning there was like three people in arrivals and he was stood there with a squash racket and I'm like that must be who I'm going home with (laughs) um and it was only when I got in the car that I thought like the tiredness descended and I'd been traveling for god knows how many hours and thought I've just got in this guy's car and now he's telling me his wife's not home and his kids are away and he literally had a squash racket and I what have I done what are my options I'm on my own don't have a mobile phone I you know there was no one else at the airport. I'm supposed to be meeting someone at the airport, so they know that I'm there. And da da da, and 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 just when you relate to it back even to performance, it was win a squash match, lose a squash match, can't pick a phone up, can't throw a text message out, can't you know have someone kind of on the phone, you know, even though it's middle of the night and you know making you making you feel better. You had to deal with that. You had to deal with the emotions of the win and the loss and. And then even when you'd ring home and have like a great win, you'd be like, oh, I'm good to know one actually saw the win because it was amazing and I played great. There was also times where I was like, I lost. I'm really glad no one saw that. Like I've got no evidence on the fact that that performance went in. I can just say I lost and I had a bad day. And, <laughs> yeah. it. and knowing that, you know, whoever it was at home might be like, what was That's that? Very true, yeah. <laughs> um, but it is really, and I think there's character building and I think that, you know, you work through a lot of problems and you also find out just how much you want it because it's tough. It toughens you up when you, you know, talk about resilience and getting yeah, on a flight sure. and putting a performance in. And now, you know, someone sat in front of a computer screen watching the match, talking to you straight after, giving you feedback, making you feel better if you've lost, building you up if you've won already preparing for the match the next day and there's none of that quiet time in your own mind to just digest what happened and sometimes that's when the most amount of learning can be done when no one else is chipping in and pecking in with like their opinion you were on the court you played the match you know what happened you know how it felt deal with it and be better next time and then look for a bit of feedback from outside. But when someone's watching you and then they're on the phone straight away giving you that, like it's almost like you lose, like, what well, what did I think? I was on there. I was doing it, competing. Yeah. And it's a yeah. big thing, I think, these days. Talking of uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. So you won the British Open in 2013. So you beat Nicole David, one of the most dominant sports people in history. So that was a real shock. But I actually want to talk about the world championships you won. So there you are, you've won your semi-final, you're in your room, you know, you've had your shower, you're taking it easy, <laughs> thinking, right, I'm playing Nicole in the final, that's a given. Boom, Nicole's lost. And then all of a sudden you go from being underdog, which it was like clearly to some degree you were comfortable with going into that final, to suddenly like, oh my God, I'm a massive odds-on favourite to win this. At which point... <laughs> This is the anxiety and the worry kicked in in a big way. You said you had the worst night's sleep and it's like, what if this, what if that? Worrying about worrying. So what did you learn from that experience? And what's your take on dealing with uncomfortable <laughs> thoughts and feelings, particularly around expectation? I mean, I just, I mean, that that experience took me completely by surprise, not only the result as well and being put into that situation, but how I dealt with it as well. And when people talk about whether or not world champion or world number one is is bigger, you can't even compare the two because world champion is holding it together for like five days, you know, five rounds, day after day, holding it together physically and mentally, emotionally, the lot. World number one is sort of like you have to do that kind of over a period of time, but it's more about consistency. And that just, that was what shocked me, I think, with the world championship final. It was, I went from 
you know, basically having a free shot at Nicole. And then this this junior made it worse. She's still playing in protective eyewear because she's a junior. She's literally having the time of her life looking out at, you know, a family and a dad. And she's like, oh, I'm in the final of the world championships. I mean, she's ridiculously, ridiculously talented. She's been world number one already for two years. She already got four world championships. And she's, you know, mid-20s, if that. Um, Ridiculously talented. Probably no one thought anyone would do anything like what Nicole's done again. And she's, you know, come around straight after it and probably going to seriously challenge it. So I think that was the thing. It was more like becoming favourite, not playing Nicole, playing a junior. Because it's sort of like, you know, how if it's a massive failure if you don't do that. So, yeah, like went went to sleep, I'm tossing, I'm turning, I'm just in a mess really and and you know again had had enough about me to sort of voice all of these opinions to Danny who was with me and I just felt sick in my warm-up and I'm not gonna lie it didn't actually I didn't actually find a way I just found a way to handle it rather than to actually get rid of it. I think that's a really key point people talk about getting rid of the feelings Part of the problem actually is in trying to get rid of them. Yeah, definitely. And I, the psychologist I was working with had a great analogy for it. Sort of like if you're a parent and you've got a small child and they come up to you and they've got a drawing and they've, you know, you know, mummy, daddy, whatever it is, I, you know, just look at that. Can you can you have a look at what I've done? And you know, you'll know more than me as a parent. Like if you if you yeah, it looks great. Uh, you know, go and do me another one. And and off they go and they come back and they tug again and you're just a bit like, yeah, yeah, great, looks great, right? And you try and get back to what you were doing. The best way to kind of, and if you think of the child as the thought that keeps coming in and you keep going, yeah, yeah, go away, brush it under the carpet, push it away. The the best way to sort of deal with that thought and the child is to is to turn around, give it the full attention, take the picture, ask what the picture was about, what does it, you know, kind of what does it want, what does it do, what do you and they're like, it's amazing. Give a little compliment. Do you think you could go and do me another one in a slightly different uh, color? Yeah. Maybe you could add in something else. Da, da, da. Child goes off all happy. You've probably got about half an hour more time than you did. <laughs> yeah. before. And that was like really, really, really good for me to be like, yeah, you can't just keep kind of like pushing it away. And we all know I'm not, I'm, I'm not a parent yet, but um, I've all been, I've been around enough of my friends' kids to know that if they just don't acknowledge what the kid is saying, we're never going to have a chat. So from my perspective, I'm like, just have a chat with the kid and make sure they're all right. And then we can actually finish our conversation (laughs) selfishly. Um, And those are like with the thoughts and stuff from, you know, anyone's perspective, like deal with it, accept it, let it in, answer it. And And the other really good thing as well is what is the actual underlying, um, generally the thoughts are always trying to have a positive effect. That was another huge thing for me. So he would come in, the psychologist today, what's your worry? I'd go, I am, I'm worried I'm going to lose. Okay, what's that thought actually trying to warn you about? So let's get rid of like what the thought is, but what's it trying to warn you about? And I was like, probably just trying to make me, you know, don't be complacent. Have you prepared properly? What can you do to prepare so you can almost invite the question in and go, I'm worried I'm going to lose, right? Why are you worried are you going to lose? Well, I'm worried I'm not, might, you know, not prepare properly or whatever. And then I can deal with that, go, thank you very much. I really appreciate you coming to remind me about that as, as like wishy-washy as this sounds. I have prepared as well as I can. 
thanks very much. You know, you don't need to come and remind me again. And that was a really good trick as well to there's normally a positive intention behind some sort of worry or negative thought. And your job is to find out what the positive intention is, acknowledge it and then deal with it and send it away again. The child relationship to thought, that's a brilliant way of thinking about it. I love that. The last thing you want to do, though, is bat it away and resist. Right, Laura, a couple of things from your book that I really got a lot out of. First of all, where you talk about like you had to learn internal validation. Early in your career, others were seen as better prospects. And yet, obviously, you were the one who went and reached the very top of the game. That was just something I want to mention because I think that's really valuable and particularly in this day and age where it's about likes on social media and whatever else if talking of phones you talk about like you had a chat I think with Danny and you had a habit of getting on the phone before matches and you talk about it frying the frontal cortex so you went out and you brought a color in book <laughs> yeah I mean as an athlete you have a heck of a lot of downtime and it's so easy to just get your phone and go down a rabbit hole and you know you, it's, you're looking at a small screen, your vision goes inward like this rather than outward. And it was just trying to find a way to, you know, not not be overthinking as well. And you go down those, as an athlete, if you go down those Twitter kind of conversations and opinions of people, that, that can affect your, you know, confidence, what people think, like how you're going to perform on the court later. And yeah, I tried to look at a lot of that stuff. Same with willpower, really, in terms of diet and and trying to kind of keep yeah. a good diet. And it was sort of like thinking of it as a petrol tank um, and your focus was the same sort of thing. Like if you think of it as you've only got um, so much fuel in the tank for the day and you're chipping away at it and willpower was the same, you know what it's like. If you're at home and you have a coffee, generally you don't really need a biscuit to go with it. But if you put yourself in a situation where you're at Starbucks and you're in the queue and you've got to go past all that, like, you know, the the cake stand, you might not have anything, but yeah. you sort of, you've used like 10% of your willpower to be like, oh God, that looks really good. Oh, it's all right. I'll get to the, and, the, and, yeah. and then, and your tank's gone down and it's the same with the focus. So I tried to sort of look at it like the, the, the tank of focus needed to be as high as it possibly could. And that kind of came from that kind of burning of the frontal cortex where it's like focusing in on the phone and the blue light and, you, and your eyes go in like that. And you know what it's like, you spend half an hour on your phone looking like that. You look up and you're like, whoa, there's a world out there. And it's a bit crazy and you feel mm. almost a bit dizzy with it. So if, yeah, I think that was a great thing for me. I got the coloring book. I could have the TV on in the background. I could sit on the balcony, you know, if we were in somewhere, a nice country and with nice weather and just sort of, chip away at that over time and have a chat with someone at the same time and you know it's just really nice way to kind of quieten the mind and and not use any frontal cortex and that the time goes so quickly when you're doing that stuff it's a great way to keep the tank full did it benefit your results did you notice a difference on court I noticed more of a kind of focus before going on court yeah. and that was always the thing I looked for it was when I start my warm-up I got down to the end of my career knowing if I was going to play well or not. That that doesn't mean I, I know whether I was going to win or lose because obviously that depends on the opponent and what happens on the game. But I could generally feel whether or not I was going to play well or, or, have, or it was going to be a struggle. And obviously I could still struggle my way through to a win sometimes. But that was what became a little bit more key. And I think being aware of a bit more about that sort of stuff was then getting in touch with what, where is my brain? How focused am I? Where is my focus? 
do do my body and my mind feel connected was sometimes I don't you know I don't know if you felt this you can almost feel like your head's above your body sometimes and you're looking in from the outside it's not a great well you're stuck in the head yeah yeah when you need to be connected body and mind so I think that I started to realize there was a connection between this focus and whether and whether or not I was going to play well and whether I was in the right frame of mind to step on the court. And then you can only hope that putting in a good performance really helps the result. But as an athlete, obviously, you go, you're go, you trying to go performance focused all the time. I love that image of a petrol tank of focus. And I've got into some a bit of bad habits. I've been really busy recently. My meditating slipped a bit and I've got into the habit of looking at the phone more than yeah. I would like. And I know that my ego might be like, okay, just have a quick look first thing in the morning. And if I do first thing in the morning, that day is essentially a write-off, not a complete write-off, don't get me wrong. But in terms of my ability to focus, you know, I'll tend to then be picking up throughout the day. It's so sapping and so many of us do it unintentionally or habitually. If you think of it as a life path for the day, it's sort of setting yourself off on the wrong path. And we all know that we can do that with our diet as well. Like if you get up and have a poor breakfast, either you skip breakfast, have something that's not great for your body, have a coffee on an empty stomach. Sometimes you can, you set off on the wrong path and it, it's, it's almost like you can't actually quite gather that path. You can't get back onto the right path because you've just set your body off down one road, haven't you? And that's where like starting your day is so crucial with like good food, good drink, hydration, good mindset. And then the rest of the day sort of opens up in front of you really nicely. Right. Last few things. So something I really was pleasantly surprised about. So you're a bit like me in terms of some of the books you read and on your website, you've got a really good reading list. And number one on your reading list is Eckhart Tolle's New Earth. Now, I've touched on Eckhart Tolle a lot, and I just wanted to talk about that and another book you mentioned, which is The Inside Out Revolution. So two questions. First of all, talk to me a bit about ego, what you think it is, how to kind of manage it a little bit better. In fact, let's start with that one, and then we'll move on to you know the inside out and how so many of us have got it wrong you know it's not outside in it's inside out but let's start with a bit of a chat about (laughs) ego yeah so I think I think having I I totally agree love a new earth I think it's my favorite one particularly for an athlete it's sort of like get rid of everything that's sort of unnecessary and you know focus on what what you can control and um the ego I think for me is is just it's pretty much about the I, isn't it? It's about me. It's about I. It's about what everything I want to do. I want to achieve my life. Me, me, me. I, I, I. Um, yeah. And and I think that that is totally normal for everybody. And everybody has an ego. And if yeah. you say, "Oh my God, he's got a massive ego," or "She's got a massive ego," or da, 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 then that's you know, I think that's when it probably for me tips over just into arrogance. Um, and somebody you know putting on a front and a bravado and. Obviously, there's an element of that within sport, but the people who are probably, I'd I'd assume, kind of have the the best ego and what you're trying to kind of look at, what I've always tried to look at in my own personality is, of course, there is always going to be an ego there. You know, we're, we're human beings. We are meaning making machines we want to make meaning from our life and there's an element like I said to you before you've doing a podcast of course you want it to be good I've written a book I want people to like it and I want people to read it but then there's sort of that kind of 
not being able to get over yourself and it you know what people think living up to a certain reputation behaving in a certain way because it's what you think is going to make you you know higher higher up in other people's minds um put you on a pedestal make you more successful and and that's where you're basically not you know I guess not being true to yourself you're not living within what is your true self and then you're trying to re- you know, live to what other people's perceptions are, which is is stressful and it's not centering for sure. Yeah. I think in terms of managing it, uh, you know, we we sort of had a bit of a chat about the hook, the duck with the human mind, and it is there's an element of that for anyone who hasn't read it. It's you know a, a duck on a pond, kind of looking at another duck on the other side of the the kind of you know the other side of the pond. He's like he's coming over here. He thinks he owns this pond. I'll show him, <laughs> you know, and they, and they get into a bit of a fight and whoever wins and he swims off, he's like, I'll have him next time. I'll show him who owns this pond. And actually ducks, like, you know, you've seen it all, haven't you? They generally come together, flap the wings, have a bit of a, you know, dust off their energy and then swim away like, you know, it's never happened. And it's a great analogy and I do love that story, but we're also not ducks <laughs> and we're not dogs and I've got a dog and he's amazing, but there is no future and there is no past. There's just the moment. And we're not like that. We're trying to make meaning from our lives. So while you can try and keep your ego nice and settled and, you know, not, not get too egotistical, it's also, you know, it is also worth kind of accepting that you are, you have, you do bring your past with you and you are, you know, your future and you're trying to build your future. So it's just managing it in a way where you are accepting of the situation and accepting of what has been in the past will be with you now. And, you know, for me, for example, that world championship win, it makes all of the sacrifice in my past worthwhile. And it also makes, without me even realizing it, it makes my future better because if I never win another thing in, 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 in my career, I'm a world champion. So it makes my future worth worthwhile as well. And it's bonkers. And that's where we do differ a little bit from animals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another one you talk about is the inside out revolution. And this is such an interesting paradigm that I think particularly is um, salient and relevant right now, where a lot of people, let's say they feel like, oh, I, I feel bad. I shouldn't feel like this. The reason I feel bad is because of circumstances outside of myself the way to feel better is to change the circumstances outside myself. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the book, I mean, it's a small book, but it's really powerful. And it is just about, you know, trying to look from the world from the inside out rather than letting the world impact you from the outside in. So such and such a body said what they said that they've got that they've got the house, they've got the car, they've got the medals you know, kind of just looking for, you know, oh, that title will make me whole again. And I think, I think when as a, as a, as a, an athlete, the more you can look for external gratification, kind of, you know, oh, I will be a better person when I win another British Open title is just such a bad way to kind of head down a track of never feeling completely whole. Um, the more you can sort of look for, you know, trying to always have that, you know, I try leave no stone unturned. Every day is trying to get a personal best out, be the best athlete that you can be, you know, get performance focused and try and lead from the outside, uh, from the inside out, then you're more likely to achieve those things. But actually, you know, there's, there's an element of desperation there, isn't there as well? It's sort of like you, 
how do you approach a squash match or a world championship final um wanting to win the title but not needing to win the title to make you a better more whole person um I'm better than someone walking down the street because I've won a world championships and they haven't, or they're better than me because they own a Ferrari and a, you know, three million pound house. It's, it's actually a really good, a really good thing that I've tried to kind of look at. Like, and I guess this sort of rings a bit of a bell with what you were saying. Like sometimes you can look at other people and you see what they've got on the surface. And then, and then you, and then you might talk to them and think, God, I wouldn't want to be in their head. And that's the sort of sign of someone who's got it switched on. Would you want to be in someone else's head um, regardless of what they've got? And that's what I used to think a lot about myself. Like, can I, can, I'm, I'm really happy in my own mind. Or Obviously, there's wobbles and situations that I struggle with. But there's some people where you think, you know, they've got, they've got, got it seemingly all, whether it's the money or the power or the job or the title. But their mind must be an absolute boggle for them. And and then that's not, it doesn't matter how much you've got, does it? And it's really just looking to kind of get that center on the inside. Um, and, and then you can probably go after yeah. what you want a little bit more as well. Yeah, totally agree. I think as well, it's a recognition that actually deep down, we are already whole. That's yeah. And you can have that on the one hand, whilst at the same time, trying to squeeze every last drop out of your talent. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, Laura, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. You're uh, full of wisdom. I really enjoyed your book. You shared some fantastic nuggets in here. So thank you very much indeed. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thanks for having me. And I'm, I'm so happy that you enjoyed the book. There's a lot of pressure on something like that. So it means a lot. And yeah, I've really enjoyed all the podcasts you've done. I've listened to a lot and it's, uh, it feels like a privilege to be on and be part of that group of people that you've had on. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode with Laura Massara. She was a real pleasure to talk to. Her book is great. And I have to say, I'm often asked for reading lists And Laura's got an extensive and recommended list on her website. So do check that out. While we're on the subject, do head to simonmundy.com for this week's Monday on Monday newsletter featuring some nutrition nuggets, four key values to consider and some words of wisdom on pressure from one of the world's foremost experts on the subject. But until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.